Welcome to episode number 12 of Calm History. This is a memoir episode featuring part 3 of Titanic, My Survival Story. I'm Harris, and I created this time machine of tranquility to bring you the drama and excitement of history, but in a calm tone, so you can just chill and relax. Alright, this is part three of a Titanic survivor's first-person account. If you haven't listened to parts one and two yet, then just hit pause and go enjoy those episodes. If you have listened to those prior parts already, then I'll start with a summary of the prior episode to remind you where things left off. In the prior episode, the Titanic voyage got underway. Our passenger shared his experiences and observations during the first few days of travel. This included a lot of ominous signs, which were a bit spooky. The episode concluded with the Titanic's collision with the iceberg and his initial reactions. In this episode, our passenger notices that the ship is tilting forward as if the front end might be sinking. He describes how most passengers are relatively calm, and some are even too calm. All passengers are told to put their life belts on and to report to the top deck. The women and children are told that they will be the first to get into lifeboats. This episode will conclude with the men standing on the upper deck, quite confused and wondering what will happen to them. If you enjoy this episode and can't wait for part four, then you don't have to. Just become a Silk member and you can get immediate access to part four, part five, and part six, which is the final episode in this series. You'll be able to listen to all six parts as a single, continuous, two and a half hour episode. This is free for a limited time and also includes access to 400 other podcast episodes, including Titanic 360. The Titanic 360 bonus episodes reveal what the captain, crew, and other passengers were experiencing during these same moments as our passenger in this series. If that interests you, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com. Okay, time to begin today's historical tale. I hope it distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. Titanic, My Survival Story Part 3 
putting on the life belts. After leaving my cabin, I climbed the three flights of stairs to the upper deck. I was determined to find out what was amiss. I opened the door leading to the top deck and stepped outside. I was still in my nightgown and immediately felt the sharpness of the ice-cold air. Walking to the starboard side, I peered over and saw the sea many feet below. It was calm and black. Looking forward, I could see the deserted deck stretching away to the first-class quarters and the captain's bridge. Looking behind me, I saw the steerage quarters and the stern bridge, nothing more. Looking into the water, there wasn't an iceberg on either side as far as I could see in the darkness. There were two or three men on deck, including the Scotch engineer who played hymns in the saloon. We compared notes of our experiences. He had just begun to undress when the engine stopped and had come up at once. So unlike me in my nightgown, he was properly dressed. Neither of us could see anything amiss. All was quiet and still. Shrugging our shoulders, the Scotchman and I went down to the next deck. Through the windows of the smoking room, we saw a game of cards going on with several onlookers. We went in to inquire if they knew more than we did. They had felt more of the heaving motion, but so far as I remember, none of them had gone out on the deck to make any inquiries. This was surprising, because one of them had seen an iceberg go by the windows, and it towered above the decks. He had called their attention to it, and they all watched it disappear, but then they just resumed their game. We asked them the height of the iceberg, and some said 100 feet, and others said 60 feet. One of the onlookers, a motor engineer traveling to America, said, Well, I'm accustomed to estimating distances, and I put it between 80 and 90 feet. We accepted his estimate and made guesses as to what had happened to the Titanic. The general impression was that we had just scraped the iceberg with a glancing blow on the starboard side. As a result, they had stopped the ship as a wise precaution and to examine her thoroughly all over. One of the men said, I expect the iceberg has scratched off some of her new paint, and the captain doesn't like to go on until she is painted up again. We laughed at his estimate of the captain's care for the ship. But alas, poor Captain Smith. By this time, he already knew what had really happened. One of the players, pointing to his glass of whiskey and turning to an onlooker, said, Just run along the deck and see if any ice has come aboard. I would like some for my drink.
we laughed at his imagination. But the forward deck was actually covered with ice that had tumbled over from the iceberg. I left the smoking room and went down to my cabin to read for a bit. I'm filled with sorrow to think I never saw any of the occupants of that smoking room again. I soon heard people walking about the corridors. I looked out and I saw several individuals standing in the hall talking to a steward. Most of them were ladies in nightgowns. Noticing other people were going upstairs, I decided to go on deck again. It was too cold to go out again in a nightgown, so this time I put on a jacket and trousers and walked up. There were now more people looking over the side and walking about. They were questioning each other as to why we had stopped, but without obtaining any definite information. I stayed on deck for several minutes, walking about vigorously to keep warm. I occasionally looked downward to the sea, as if something there would indicate the reason for the delay. The ship had now resumed her course, moving very slowly through the water with a little white line of foam on each side. I think we were all glad to see this. It seemed better than just standing still. I soon decided to go down again. As I crossed from the starboard to the port side, I saw an officer climb on a lifeboat on the port side and begin to remove the cover. I don't remember that anyone paid any attention to him. Certainly, no one thought that they were preparing to man the lifeboats and embark from the ship. All this time, there was no apprehension of any danger in the minds of passengers. No one was in any condition of panic or hysteria. It would have been strange if they had been, because there wasn't any definite evidence of danger. As I passed to the door to go down, I looked forward again and saw to my surprise an undoubted tilt downwards of the front of the ship. It was only a slight slope, which I don't think anyone had noticed, or at least they hadn't remarked about it. As I went downstairs, a confirmation of this tilting forward came in something unusual about the stairs. I had a curious sense of something out of balance and of not being able to put my feet down in the right place. Naturally, being tilted forward, the stairs would slope downwards at an angle and tend to throw one forward. I couldn't see any visible slope of the stairway. It was perceptible only by my sense of balance at this time. On deck D, there were three ladies standing in the passage near the cabin. I think in the end they were all saved. It is a good thing at least to be able to chronicle meeting someone who was saved after noting so many who were not. They remarked, 
why have we stopped? I replied, well, we had stopped, but now we are going again. Oh, no, one replied. I can't feel the engines as I usually do, or hear them. Listen. We all listened, and there was no audible engine sound. I had noticed earlier that the vibration of the engines is most noticeable when lying in a bath. The throb of the engines comes straight from the floor through its metal sides, so much so that it is uncomfortable to put one's head back on the metal bath. I decided to use this method to check the engines at this moment. I took the ladies along the corridor to a bathroom, and I had them put their hands on the side of the bath. They could feel the engines throbbing down below, and were happy to know that we were making some headway. I left them with that reassurance, and I headed back to my cabin. On the way, I passed some stewards standing carefree against the walls of the saloon. One of them, the library steward again, was leaning over a table, writing. They had no knowledge of the accident, nor any feeling of alarm that we had not yet resumed full speed. Their whole attitude expressed perfect confidence in the ship and the officers. As I neared my cabin, I saw a man standing in the hallway, fastening his tie. He asked, Any fresh news? I replied, Not much. We are going ahead slowly, and she's down a little bit at the bows. But I don't think it's anything serious. Come in and look at this man, he laughed. He won't get up. I looked in, and in the top bunk lay a man with his back to me. He was closely wrapped in his bedclothes, and only the back of his head was visible. Why won't he get up? Is he asleep? I asked. The man in the top bunk then grunted to us, You don't catch me leaving a warm bed to go up on that cold deck at midnight. I know better than that. We both told him laughingly why he had better get up. But he was certain he was just as safe there, and all this dressing was quite unnecessary. Not being able to convince him, I left them, and I went to my cabin. I put on some underclothing, sat on the sofa, and read for about ten minutes. I then heard the noise of people passing up and down the hallway, followed by a loud shout from above, all passengers on deck with life belts on. I placed the two books I was reading in the side pockets of my jacket. I picked up my life belt and I headed upstairs while tying it on. As I came out of my cabin, I remember seeing the purser's assistant. He had his foot on the stairs and was about to climb them. He 
he whispered to his steward and jerked his head significantly behind him. I didn't think anything of it at the time. But now, I have no doubt that he was telling him what had happened to the ship. I walked upstairs with the other passengers. No one was running or seemed alarmed. I met two ladies coming down. One seized me by the arm and said, Oh, I have no life belt. Will you come down to my cabin and help me find it? I returned with them to deck F. The lady who had addressed me was holding my arm all the time in a vice-like grip, much to my amusement. We found a steward in her gangway who took them to find their life belts. Coming upstairs again, I passed the purser's window on deck F, and I noticed a light inside. When halfway up to deck E, I heard the heavy metallic clang of the safe door. It was followed by a hasty step retreating along the hallway towards the first-class quarters. I have little doubt it was the purser who had taken all valuables from his safe. He was probably transferring them to the charge of the first-class purser in the hope they might all be saved in one package. That is why I said previously that the envelope containing my money was probably not in the safe at the bottom of the sea, but rather it is probably in a bundle with many others like it waterlogged at the bottom. Reaching the top deck, I found many people assembled there. Some were fully dressed with coats and wraps, well prepared for anything that might happen. Others had thrown wraps hastily around themselves when they heard the summons to equip themselves with life belts. They were not in much condition to face the cold of that night. Fortunately, there was no wind to beat the cold air through our clothing. Even the breeze caused by the ship's motion had died away because the engines had stopped again. The Titanic now lay peacefully on the surface of the sea, motionless, quiet. It wasn't even a rocking to the roll of the sea. Indeed, this sea was as calm as a lake, except for the gentle swell, which didn't affect a ship the size of the Titanic. To feel the ship so steady and still was like standing on a large rock in the middle of the ocean. It gave one a sense of wonderful security. But there was now more evidence of the coming catastrophe than when I was on deck previously. One sign was the roar and hiss of steam escaping from the boilers. It was coming out of a large steam pipe reaching out of one of the funnels. It was a harsh, deafening boom that made conversation difficult. No doubt, it increased the apprehension of some people 
merely because of the volume of the noise. Imagine 20 locomotives blowing off steam in a low key. This is the unpleasant sound that met us as we climbed out onto the top deck. It is likely that the engineers were venting the steam to prevent a boiler explosion if water rushed into those compartments. This is speculation, and I didn't hear anyone connect this noise with the danger of a boiler explosion. From the time we came on deck until I was able to get into a lifeboat, I heard very little conversation of any kind among the passengers. It is not the slightest exaggeration to say that no signs of alarm were exhibited by anyone. There was no indication of panic or hysteria, no cries of fear, and no running to and fro to discover what was the matter. There was also no explanation as to why we had been summoned on deck with life belts and what was to be done with us now that we were there. We stood there quietly, looking on at the work of the crew as they manned the lifeboats. No one ventured to interfere with them or offered to help them. Most of the men and women stood quietly on the deck. Some paced slowly up and down, waiting for orders from the officers. Now, before I proceed, it is important to keep in mind the amount of information at our disposal. Men and women act according to judgment based on knowledge of the conditions around them. The best way to understand some inconceivable things that did happen is to imagine yourself standing on deck that night. It may seem ridiculous that some women refused to leave the ship or that some individuals returned to their cabins. Keep in mind, these people didn't know the ship was going to sink. It made sense to not feel danger that night. The air was still, and it was a beautiful starlit night. The ship had come quietly to rest, without any indication of disaster. There wasn't a visible iceberg, and no one could see any hole in the ship's side through which water was pouring in. Nothing was broken or out of place. No sound of alarm. No panic. No movement of anyone except at a walking pace. We had an almost complete absence of any knowledge about our situation. We didn't know the nature of the accident, the extent of the damage, or the danger of the ship sinking in a few hours. We also didn't know the numbers or capacities of the lifeboats, the rafts, and other life-saving appliances available, or what other ships were near or coming to help. I think this was the result 
of the deliberate judgment of the officers. And perhaps it was the best thing that they could have done. It would have been an enormous challenge to control all the passengers on the ship. It is also likely that the officers didn't have a firm understanding of the big picture. Throughout this time, people were pouring up the stairs and heading to the crowd. I remember thinking that it would be good to return to my cabin and rescue some money and warmer clothing if we were to embark in lifeboats. But seeing people still coming upstairs, I decided it would only cause confusion if I passed them on the stairs. So, I remained on deck. I was now on the starboard side of the top deck. The time was about 20 minutes past midnight. I watched the crew at work on the lifeboats. Some were arranging the oars. Some were coiling ropes on the deck. These ropes would be the ones used to lower the lifeboats into the sea. As we watched, cranks were turned that swung the lifeboats away from the ship and clear of the edge of the deck. Just then, an officer came along from the first-class deck and shouted above the noise of the escaping steam, All women and children, get down to deck below, and all men stand back from the boats. He was lightly dressed, with a white muffler twisted hastily around his neck. He was probably off duty when the ship struck the iceberg. The men fell back, and the women went below to get into the boats from the lower deck. Two women refused at first to leave their husbands. But, partly by persuasion and partly by force, they were separated from them and sent down to the next deck. The preparation of the lifeboats and the separation of men and women impressed on us slowly the presence of imminent danger. Surprisingly, though, it made no difference in the attitude of the crowd. They were just as prepared to obey orders and to do what came next as when they first came on deck. Anyone who had not realized that the ship was in danger by now was about to get a dramatic wake-up call. A blast of light suddenly came from the forward deck, along with a hissing roar that made us all turn away from watching the boats. Something rocketed upwards towards the stars. Up it went, higher and higher, with a sea of faces upturned to watch it. Then, an explosion that seemed to split the silent night in two. A shower of sparks sank slowly down and went out, one by one. With a concerted gasp, these words escaped the lips of the crowd. Rocket flares.
A second rocket flare was launched, and then a third. Everyone knew what rocket flares at sea mean. Without being told, we knew that we were calling for help from anyone who was near enough to see these flares. The crew were now in the boats. The sailors were lowering them down to the deck below where passengers were waiting. The women and children climbed over the rail into the boats from deck B and filled them. When full, the boats were lowered one by one. We could see this by peering over the edge of the top deck. About this time, while walking the deck, I saw two ladies come over from the port side. They walked towards the rail separating the second class from the first class deck. An officer stood, barring their way. The women asked, May we pass to the boats? He replied politely, No, madam, your boats are down on your deck. He pointed to where they swung below. The ladies turned and went towards the stairway. These second-class ladies were not being allowed to enter a boat from the first-class deck. I have no doubt that they were able to enter one of the boats. They had ample time. I mention this to show that there was some separation of the classes as they filled the lifeboats. How far it was carried out, I don't know. As the women and children were being loaded onto the lifeboats, the men were increasingly wondering their destiny. And soon enough, they were about to find out. This is the end of part three. Part four will be released on this podcast in about one to two months. But if you don't want to wait, then just become a Silk member and you'll get immediate access to all six parts of this story as a single, continuous, two and a half hour episode. This is free for a limited time and also includes access to 400 other podcast episodes as well as my related bonus series called Titanic 360. If interested, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com.